Welcome to the Athens Frontline, a podcast presented by the Red and Black that covers topics in health and wellness. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra, here to discuss booster shots, authorizations, and why you just might want this vaccine with Dr. Nick Fox. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Dr. Fox joined Athens Pulmonary in 2019. He's a UGA alum who is excited to be back in Athens. After completing medical school at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, he moved to Portland, Maine with his wife where they both completed their residencies. He stayed on at Maine Medical Center for an additional year as a chief resident and junior faculty member before moving back south to Charleston, South Carolina. There he completed his pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowship at the Medical University of South Carolina. He is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, critical care medicine, and pulmonary medicine. He has active privileges at Piedmont Athens Regional Hospital, St. Mary's Hospital, and Landmark Hospital right here in Athens, Georgia. Dr. Fox is dedicated to medical education and enjoys working closely with medical students and residents. He is also the COVID-19 Medical Director for UGA Athletics Association and an Assistant Professor with the AU-UGA Medical Partnership. Dr. Fox, how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you for that introduction. Um, and I'm excited to to be here to answer questions about um, COVID vaccine and, and the booster shots uh, in particular. Of course. I woke up today. I've been looking forward to this interview because um, I know I've been texting you a lot about it uh, <laughs> because I was putting myself in the position of when my classes had gotten canceled in 2020 and it it seemed like the world was ending and this thought of a vaccine was just so unimaginable with what was going on. And now just, you know, almost a year and a half later, we're talking about booster shots. I just thought that yes. was crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's uh, a testament, I think, to um, the scientific community um, and what everyone can do when there's really a sole focus in the setting of a pandemic like this, because I remember treating patients before there was uh, a vaccine um, and feeling very helpless to prevent um, the virus. And now, now we've come a long way, obviously. For sure. And you've seen a lot uh, this year and a half. When you were in medical school, did you ever think you're going to see such a bad pandemic? Uh, no, <laughs> no. I remember uh, learning about, you know, when HIV first started and, and what that must have been like for physicians in the in the uh, 80s and early 90s. And um, so I guess maybe this would equate some, somewhat to that experience. Right. So let's talk about the booster shots. I feel like there's a lot of information coming out right now. And there's so many people who haven't even gotten their first doses of a vaccine. As of right now, who exactly is eligible for the booster shot? Well, as you mentioned, uh, people should be vaccinated with the primary series first. So for Pfizer, BioNTech, from now on, I'll just call that Pfizer, and the Moderna uh, vaccines, which are both mRNA vaccines, you are eligible for the booster um, shot six months after completing 
your primary vaccine series. So that would be six months after the second dose. And along with that, there's a couple qualifiers. So anyone over the age of 65, and then anyone over the age of 18 with chronic medical conditions, or that live in a long-term care facility, or that are considered high-risk professionals. And if you look, that is quite an inclusive list, meaning first responders, nurses, postal service workers, educational staff, teachers, grocery store employees, public transplant, uh, public uh, transit, excuse me, employees, uh, all of those would fall under that uh, qualifier. So it, it opens it up to quite a long list uh, of individuals. And then for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier. It's anyone over the age of 18 and you're eligible two months after your initial shot. Awesome. And, and how is this booster shot different from the other two doses? I've had a lot of questions come in about this. Is it the, the same, you know, materials that this new vaccine is created from, or is it a, a different vaccine? Does it cover these new variants that we keep hearing about, especially Delta? Yeah, all great questions. So before I answer that, I, let's just make sure we have everybody is on the same page with terminology. So when we talk about primary vaccine series, we're talking about two shots for the mRNA vaccines, meaning Pfizer and Moderna. And um, those are separated by 21 days for Pfizer and 28 days for Moderna. And then for the primary series for Johnson & Johnson, it's just one shot. So that's what we would consider being fully vaccinated two weeks after you've completed that series. Then there's also a, um, something called an additional dose, which was um, approved by the uh, FDA for emergency use um, in people that are immunocompromised. And that is another dose of the same exact same vaccine, whether it's uh, mRNA vaccine or Johnson & Johnson vaccine, either 21, 28 days, excuse me, after your mRNA vaccine or two months after your Johnson & Johnson. And that that's not really a booster. That is, we found in clinical trials that people that have active cancer or are being treated for cancer or on immunosuppressive medications or have HIV, all of those people tend to make a, a limited response to the initial vaccine. And so they've been, they qualify for an additional dose. And so then the, and then the last term would be booster, which is what we're talking about today. And um, that is the exact same vaccine um, for Pfizer, same dose. Moderna, it's actually half the dose of the initial injections. And then Johnson & Johnson, it's the same dose. So they're all the exact same vaccine. The only difference is for booster, the Moderna is half the initial dose. And all of that is kind of based on trial data where they looked at an immune, immune response um, and what dose was needed to get what they felt was an appropriate immune response with the boosters. Gotcha. And you mentioned the EUA or the emergency use authorization. Now this has been used as, uh, for some, it's been celebratory like me. We got the authorization, but some it's also been used as an excuse that they're just using this because we need it, but they didn't actually do the whole research. What is the difference between an emergency use authorization, a full authorization, and then many times also, how are those two things different than a CDC recommendation? Yes. And this is, this is, I definitely understand how this can be confusing. Emergency youth authorization is really a tool that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration can use to help provide a medical product, whether that be a, a medicine or a vaccine, it can provide it quickly in the setting of a pandemic. Certainly safety of that vaccine or medicine medicine is still paramount. But in, in the setting of pandemic like COVID-19, when we had 
millions uh, affected and, and, and hundreds of thousands of deaths, the FDA, we want to have some ability to provide what is deemed a effective and safe tool such as the COVID-19 vaccines during that pandemic. And so typically an EUA is provided with a phase one and phase two trial being completed. So it's not like that is shortchanged or curtailed. But during the phase three trial, which is often where you enroll hundreds or thousands of patients, um, you can begin author, you can begin, um, the manufacturer can begin paperwork to receive an EUA authorization so that they can give the vaccine while the data is still being reviewed. And, and that data continues to get reviewed. And so that's an emergency youth authorization. It's by no means a workaround to get things out without studying them. It's simply a way that we can provide uh, what everyone believes to be an effective and safe vaccine in the midst of a pandemic so more people do not have to die. Now, full FDA approval takes a lot more data. It's a separate submission process by the manufacturer, at least six months of data. The phase three has to be complete. And so that's kind of the difference there. And as we've seen, you know, the first DUA was given in December of 2020 for the Pfizer vaccine. And then it was the first to get full FDA approval in August of this year. And I suspect you know, all of these will get full FDA approval. It's just a time constraint, really, and um, a longer um, review of the data. And then in terms of the difference between a CDC recommendation, the CDC uses FDA approval as one of the tenants it looks at before providing a recommendation, but it also looks at disease epidemiology, the public acceptance, uh, cost, supply. So uh, a couple more considerations go into a CDC recommendation, but often it does fall in line with an FDA uh, EUA or full FDA approval, as we've seen with these vaccines. Got it. And, and just a follow-up question, what role do FDA advisors have in making a decision when they're looking at these vaccines, the FDA is looking at these vaccines that, hey, we are going to give the EUA for you know this age group to receive a vaccine? Because are advisors the ones actually making the decision or are they purely just advising? And what is that board kind of, who is that board consisting of? That's a great question. I, I can't honestly speak to the makeup of the boards. Um, I know there's physicians, but I, I don't, it's not a requirement, I believe, to be a physician. But what they're looking at is really safety and efficacy. So, and then they're taking into account, especially in the EUA, the severity of the disease. And so um, I believe the advisors uh, advise the board, and then the board makes a decision, such as they've done in, in the vaccine cases. And then the advisors continue. There's multiple government agencies that continue, especially the FDA, that continues to look at safety of these vaccines, even after they've been approved. Um, so it's not, once the process is completed in terms of approval, they don't stop looking at potential side effects or risks. And looking at it, uh, just kind of shifting gears now, this made huge headlines and a lot of physicians came out to also speak for it. What does it mean when people say mix and match with these booster shots? And since Johnson & Johnson is adenovirus-based, how does an mRNA booster, so those people who got their primary vaccine and it was a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, how is it okay for them to get this mRNA-based booster now? So the primary goal of any booster is to increase the immune response uh, of, of the individual. And um, in terms of the different vaccines, specifically the mRNA vaccines and the uh, adenovirus vector vaccine, they ultimately do the same thing. They teach the 
immune system how to create proteins and antibodies to those proteins to fight off the virus. And so it doesn't necessarily matter the initial vaccine uh, that you receive. It's more the time frame uh, after that, as we've already discussed. And can all of these vaccines create a robust immune response? And, and based on the clinical data we have, the answer is yes. And so I think that's what led to the, the quote unquote mix and match recommendation. And also it does make it easier for the individual. You know, you don't have to necessarily find uh, a specific place for a sp specific um, vaccine. We want to make them, uh, we want to make, make the process easy. Um, and so you can just, it, once you're eligible for the booster, you can get any vaccine, which, which you can feel confident will produce an, a robust immune response and protect you, hopefully not only from um, contracting these new variants and contracting the virus, but more importantly, prevents you from ending up with severe disease, such as going to the hospital or even death. And so there's, there's not a, a lot behind the vector or the um, difference between mRNA and adenovirus vector vaccines in terms of the booster. It's more just the goal of producing a robust immune response. That makes sense. I got my booster shot just about, I want to say a, a week ago. And something that's all been on my mind is how long with, will this immunity last now? Because when I found out about the immunity, the, the range that it'll last now that we're going to need a booster shot, I had already gotten my primary vaccines. And then these studies came out. Do we know mm -hmm. how long this booster shot immunity will last now? I think the short answer is we don't know. I think we can kind of guess that it's going to be a while. Uh, and I think I don't, I'm not a believer that we're going to need a booster every year. I wonder if it'll be more like the Tdap vaccine, the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, where as an adult, you need a booster every 10 years. I, I don't have, uh, obviously, I can't support that theory with data. The answer to your question really depends on what is our global vaccine status in the US? If we can, if we can reach 80, 90, 80, you know, 80% would be great, but 80 or 90% vaccinated, um, and we start to see the incidence of this virus hopefully plummet, then I think that that plays a part in, in this as well. Because again, the, the booster is really to prevent severe disease. I mean, certainly we want it to prevent you from catching the virus, but really when it comes down to it, we want it to prevent you from dying from uh, the disease if you get the disease. And so I think as the incidence goes down, the likelihood of that happening in the general public will also go down. We do think that the booster provides some protection against the variants like Delta variant, but that will be a question that will remain to be seen too. Will we need additional boosters if more variants arise? And, and it'll just take more observational data. These, you know, That's what it took to get the booster um, vaccines um, approved. Um, and so I think we'll just see over the next year, we'll continue to gather data and see how the immune, uh, the vaccine-induced immune response wanes, or if it stays stable, or uh, I think that'll be something that we'll be looking at very closely. Fortunately, I, I don't know how often we'll need a booster, but I, I would venture to say it won't be annually. Right, and and that that's a good feeling, right? Because a lot of people still struggle to take out time to get their flu shot every year, unfortunately, and so um, it's a good thing to hear that it it might not just you know be annually. So I got the the booster vaccine right and i'm sure you, maybe you have or people you know or even your mm -hmm. patients 
got these symptoms after the primary vaccines. Now, my symptoms after the booster shot did last a bit longer and, and seemed a little bit more tougher on my body than the, when I had gotten the primary vaccine. Now, nevertheless, I know whatever I was feeling was nowhere near what I would be feeling if I actually got the virus itself. And so I'm grateful <laughs> to get to to be privileged enough and and get the vaccine and the boosters. But why were my symptoms, do you think, you know, why did they last longer and why did they, the, the body fatigue and, and the tiredness essentially magnify itself? Well, um, if you if you look at um, the data out there on the boosters, it's it it's definitely the same kind of symptoms, fever, aches and pains, sore arm, pain at the injection site, headache, fatigue, um, very similar to what many people experienced after their second shot with the um, mRNA vaccines. And for I, I myself, actually, I think the booster had less uh, of a, an effect on me than my second shot in the mRNA vaccine series. So I think it's variable. Obviously, your body's already um, made a lot of antibodies. And that's one argument, um, especially in healthy individuals such as yourself, that how helpful is the booster? Because we know that even after the completing the primary vaccine series, people have still a, a fairly robust um, immune response. And it's just, it's hard to measure antibodies and know at what level are you protected or less protected. And so I think one reason you may experience um, more symptoms is because you already have a fairly um, robust immune response from the initial vaccine series. The one, the only thing I could find when I was looking into this uh, a little bit more was that uh, swollen lymph nodes have been reported uh, a little bit more than the initial vaccine series with with the booster shot. Otherwise, they've been deemed very safe. Um, there, there's no new side effect that we found. Of course, probably the most concerning side effect that we did see with some of the second shots of the mRNA vaccines is this um, myocarditis or an inflammation of the heart muscle. But again, most of those side effects that have been reported uh, have been, those cases have been limited and um, spontaneously recover without long-lasting uh, effects. So I think it's very safe. I think you may experience symptoms very similar to your second vaccine shot if you've got the mRNA vaccines or the Johnson and the first shot with the Johnson and Johnson, and it may last an extra 24 hours. But other than that, they're, they're very safe. Awesome. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, long haul COVID. I mean, I, I read up more about it. For the people who are suffering with long haul, you know, symptoms after they got COVID-19, should they get the booster still? And how will the booster essentially affect them? And it, will it be the same or different than those who are not experiencing long haul COVID-19 symptoms? Unfortunately, there's a lot of people suffering from this, and I, re I really feel for them because right now there's very limited information on how we can help them. And how it relates to the vaccines, I think if you are suffering from long-haul COVID, meaning you've gotten over the initial infection, I absolutely recommend getting the vaccines in terms of the primary series. And then there's some data from France and, and also out of Yale that getting vaccines in the setting of long-haul COVID actually improves symptoms. I don't think we fully understand why, and this is really just kind of survey data, so we don't have the causation necessarily figured out, but I think probably the same goes for booster vaccines, that there's a chance that maybe there's a benefit to the patient in terms of their symptoms. I certainly don't think there's harm, and the primary way to prevent long-haul COVID is to be vaccinated. So um, obviously, the folks we're talking about already have long-haul COVID, but that doesn't mean they're not still vulnerable to getting the virus again if they're unvaccinated. 
Right. You don't want to make that worse at all. Well, here's another question. I've, I've heard a lot of parents say, a lot of parents who have gotten vaccinated even say that I don't think my children need the vaccine. You know, their immune systems are stronger than mine. And they've also, for some reason, said it, you know, well, children authorization takes longer. Why does authorization for vaccines for children take longer? So let me answer the second part of that question first. So one of the reasons studies in children take longer, whether it's medications or vaccines, is it's the process to enroll children to vaccines is, is more difficult. You have to get parental consent. Uh, most of the time, You there's more layers of protection for the children. Certainly a, a great focus on safety is um, needed. And then it just takes longer to get numbers in children in these, in these trials. And so that's one reason it takes longer. And the reason specifically to COVID vaccines that I think it's taken longer is anytime you're creating a vaccine, you really want to target the at-risk population first. And thankfully, um, COVID-19 has seemed to affect children in a much less severe way, uh, which I'm which I'm very uh, grateful for. And because of that, you know, the primary focus was on adults. So all of the initial trials enrolled adults, not children. It was adults that were dying, not children. And so that's another reason why this process for getting approval for a children vaccine has taken longer. The focus was on adults. And truthfully, in my opinion, the focus um, should still be on adults. If we can get our adult population vaccinated to a high rate, then the spread to children will be much less likely. So that would be my response to why it takes longer and specifically why it took longer with COVID. And then in terms of parents that are concerned about getting their kids vaccinated because they say, you know, my kid probably won't have severe disease. I would agree with that. That's true. It's likely that your child, if they do get COVID, will not have severe disease. It's not a 0% chance that they won't get severe disease, but it is low. Um, I myself will, my kids are too young currently for the approved uh, age of over five, but if they were, I would get them vaccinated. I think for several reasons. Um, There's still things we don't know about the virus and how it could affect kids uh, down the road. It certainly affects their social life. If, you know, they have to be at home, they can't go to school, assuming they were infected. So I think it it makes you feel a little bit safer um, sending them to school. And especially with our, unfortunately, with the population at large, especially in the Southeast, not fully vaccinated or anywhere near where we'd like it to be, you know, I think the risk to children is still high to get the virus. So I can't argue that with the fact that the kids uh, don't seem to get uh, the virus at such a severe uh, disease as the adults, but I still think that the vaccines are safe. It's obviously a lower dose. Um, I do think they provide benefit to your children, but uh, I hope the focus doesn't fall away from getting our adults vaccinated because that will reduce the spread and put our kids at even less risk. Right. And my last question, and I don't know if you you will know the answer to this because it might just be like a pharmacy thing and what's more efficient for them. But when I got my booster shot, they gave me a whole new vaccine card. And part of me was a little bit anxious because I'm, you know, you got to take care of one vaccine card. I mean, these are so important for travel and, and to prove, you know, for a lot of different things like internships and jobs. Now you got to handle two vaccine cards. Do you know why they do that or or the best way to keep track? Are there any apps out there? I don't specifically know of any apps. I definitely think it is wise to take a photo on your phone of your vaccine card and make you know make a copy. As to why you got a second card, I'm not exactly sure. In fact, if you bring your card with you to the booster, they there's plenty of extra lines on there to where they should be able to write it all on one card. Um, so that's certainly uh, recommended to bring your card and, and wherever you get your um, vaccine, they should be able to write it on that 
one card. Uh, the same thing did happen to me though. I got a second card mainly because I didn't have my original card with me when I got my booster. So wherever your vaccine um, provider is, I, I just went back and took both cards and got them to consolidate it onto one card. But I've also taken photos of my card because I agree with you. It is very important. It's important for travel, certain documentation. So I think taking a photo of it, making a photocopy is important. But if you bring your card with you to your booster, they should write it on the same card. If they give you a second one, you can ask to consolidate them onto one card later on. And if you lose your card, the best way to kind of get another one is to go back to where you initially received your vaccine and ask for it because they should they have to keep records of who they've vaccinated. That's good. Yeah, no, I brought my original. They they gave me another one, but it might be because I think I went to a public, so they they put a sticker on. So maybe oh, okay. was enough room to write, but not enough room to put a sticker on it. But I think, you know, there there might be apps out there, but I will definitely take a photo of both so that I, I have them. And I recommend everyone listening to this podcast who also do the same because these vaccine cards are are very important. We just wanted to share some ideas that we had about how you can safely store your COVID-19 vaccination card or cards if you have more than one. We do recommend that you do not go in and get it laminated because when you go in to get any future doses that you may need, including your booster dose, your pharmacist wants to be able to write on your cards or put a sticker on it. So laminating it isn't the best way to go, but you can get a COVID-19 protection sleeve off of Amazon or Walmart where you can take your card out and put it back in easily whenever you need to or whenever your pharmacist needs to. Another good idea about storing your vaccine card digitally is using apps such as Vaccine Passport or Vax, or if you have an Apple device, asking your pharmacist for a QR code you can scan and storing a copy of the COVID-19 vaccine card that you got to your Apple wallet, or if you have an Android, doing the same thing and storing it in Google Play. If you have any ideas that we haven't talked about today, feel free to tell us by emailing news at rnb.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Athens Frontline podcast presented by The Red and Black. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra. Make sure you tune back in next week for our next episode. Until then, check us out on social media at Red and Black. Have a healthy and safe rest of your week.